Chapter 10 of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 10. Nothing is so incapacitating as self-love. Red Rift Farm stands near the lane, between the village and the high road, presenting its back to all corners with British sang-froid. To approach it you must go up the wide path between the barn and the dovecote on one side, and on the other the long, low lethary standing above its wall, just able to look at itself in the pool, where the ducks are breaking up its reflection. When you pass through the narrow iron gateway and the high wall which protects the garden on the north side, the old Jacobean house rises up above you, all built of dim rose-red and dim blue brick, looking benignly out across the meadows over its small enclosed garden, which had once been the orchard, in which some of the ancient bent apple-trees are still like old pensioners permitted to remain. When Annette first passed through that gateway, the beautiful dim old building with its lattice windows peered at her through a network of apple-blossom. But now the apple-trees have long since dropped their petals, and you can see the house clearly, with its wavering tiled string courses and its three rounded gables, and the vine flung half across it. The low, square oak door, studded with nails, stands wide open, showing a glimpse of a small panelled hall with a carved black staircase coming down into it. We need not peer in through the windows at the Shakespeare calendar on Aunt Maria's study table to see what time of year it is, for everything tells us. The masses of white pinks crowding up to the threshold and laying their sweet heads against the stone edging of their domain. The yellow lichen in flower on the roof the serried ranks of sweet William full out. It is certainly early June, and the black-faced sheep moving sedately in the long meadows in front of the house confirm us in our opinion, for they have shed their becoming woollen overalls and are straddling about, hideous to behold, in their summer tights. Only the lambs, now large and sedate, keep their pretty February coats, though by some unaccountable fatality they have all, poor dears, lost their tails. Losher is a sedate place. I have never seen those solemn Losher lambs jump about, as they do in Hampshire. A Hampshire lamb among his contemporaries, with the juice of the young grass in him. Hi, friskings and caperings! That is a sight to make an old ram young. But the Losher lambs seem ever to see the shadow of the blue-coated butcher in the sunshine. They move in decorous bands, as if they were going to church, hastening suddenly altogether, as if they were late. Losher is a sedate place. The farm lads, still in their teens, move as slowly as the creeping rivers, much slower than the barges. The boys early leave off or scurrying and shouting bands down the lanes in the dusk. The little girls peep demurely over the garden gates, and walk slowly indoors, if spoken to. We have ascertained that it is early June, and we need no watch to tell us what o'clock it is. It is milking time, the hour when good little boys, whom mother can trust, are to be seen hurrying in an important manner with milk cans. Half-past four it must be, for the red cows, sweet-breathed and soft-paced, have passed up the lane half an hour ago, looking gently to right and left, with the lustrous, nun-like eyes, now and then putting out a large red tongue to lick at the hedgerow. Sometimes, as to-day, the bull precedes them, hustling along, surly, a fairy, making a low, continuous grunting, which is not anger, 
for he is kind as bulls go, so much as awkwardness, the desire of the egotist to make his discontentment public, and his disillusionment with his pasture and all his gentle-tempered wives. Annette came down the carved staircase, and stood a moment in the doorway in a pale lilac gown, the same that you will remember the Miss Blinkets saw half an hour later. Her ear caught the sound of a manly voice mingled with Aunt Maria's dignified tones, and the somewhat agitated accompaniment of the clink of tea-things. Aunt Harriet was evidently more acutely undecided than usual which cup to fill first, and was rattling them in the way that always irritated Aunt Maria, though she made heroic efforts to dissimulate it. Annette came to the conclusion that she should probably be late for choir practice if she went to the drawing-room, so she walked noiselessly across the hall and slipped through the garden. A dog-cart was standing horseless in the courtyard, and the delighted female laughter which proceeded from the servants' hall showed that a male element in the shape of a groom had been added to the little band of women servants. What a fortunate occurrence that there should be a caller, for on this particular afternoon Aunt Maria had reached a difficult place in her new book, the hero having thrown over his lady-love, because she, foolish modernist that she was, toying with her life's happiness, would not promise to leave off smoking. The depressed authoress needed a change of thought, and it would be pleasant for the whole household if Aunt Harriet's mind could be diverted from the fact that her new air-cushion leaked, not the old black one that would not have mattered so much, but the new round red society one which she used when there were visitors in the house. Aunt Harriet's mind had brooded all day over the air-cushion as mournfully as a heart's tongue over a well. Annette hoped that it was a cheerful caller. Perhaps it was Canon Weatherby from Rybenbridge, an amiable widower, and almost as great an admirer of Aunt Maria's works as of his own stock of anecdotes. In the meanwhile, if she, Annette, missed her own lawful tea at home, to which of the little colony of neighbours in the village should she go for a cup on her way to the church, where choir practice was held? To the Dow House? Old Lady Louisa Manvers had ceased to come downstairs at all, and her daughter Janie, a few years older than herself, poor downtrodden Janie, would be only too glad to see her. But then her imbecile brother Harry, with his endless copy-book remarks, would be certain to be having tea with her, and Lady Louisa's trained nurse, whom Annette particularly disliked. No, she would not go to the Dower House this afternoon. She might go to tea with the Miss Blinkets, who were always kind to her, and whose cottage lay between her and the church. The two Miss Blinkets were about the same age as the Miss Nevilles, and regarded them with deep admiration, not unmixed with awe, coupled with an evident hope that a pleasant intercourse might presently be established between the Hermitage and Red Rift Farm. They were indeed quite excited at the advent among them of one so gifted as the author of Crooks and Coronets. They perceived from her books took a very high view of the responsibility created by genius. Annette liked the Miss Blinkets, and her knowledge of Aunt Maria's character had led her to hope that this enthusiastic deference might prove acceptable to a wearied authoress in her hours of relaxation. But she soon found that the Miss Nevilles, with all the prestige of London and a literary milieu resting upon them, were indignant at the idea that they should care to associate with a couple of provincial old maids. Their almost ferocious attitude towards the amiable Miss Blinkets had been a great shock to Annette who neither at that nor at any later time 
learned to make the social distinctions which occupied so much of her two aunts' time. The Miss Neville's acceptance of a certain offering of ferns peeping through the meshes of a string bag brought by the Miss Blinkets had been so frigid, so patrician, that it had made Annette more friendly than she would naturally have been. She had welcomed the ferns with enthusiasm, and before she had realised it, had become the object of a sentimental love and argus-eyed interest on the part of the inmates of the hermitage, which threatened to have its embarrassing moments. No, now she came to think of it, she would not go to tea with the Miss Blinkets this afternoon. Of course she might go to the vicarage. Miss Black, the vicar's sister who kept house for him, had often asked her to do so before choir practice. But Annette had vaguely felt of late that Miss Black, who had been very cordial to her on her arrival, and was still extremely polite, did not regard her with as much favour as at first. In fact, that as Mr. Black formed a high, and ever higher, opinion of her, that of his sister was steadily lowered to keep the balance even. Annette knew what was the matter with Mr. Black, though that gentleman had not yet discovered what it was that was affecting his usually placid temper, causing him on his parochial rounds so frequently to take the short cut past Red Riff Farm. She had just decided, without emotion, but with distinct regret, that she must do without tea this afternoon, when a firm step came along the lane behind her, and Mr. Black overtook her. For once he had taken that short cut to some purpose, though his face, fixed in a dignified preoccupation, gave no hint that he felt fortune had favoured him at last. The Miss Blinkets had heard it affirmed, by one who knew a wide sweep of clergy and was therefore competent to form an opinion, that Mr. Black was the handsomest vicar in the diocese. But possibly that was not high praise, for the clergy had evidently deteriorated in appearance since the ancient Blinket, that type of aristocratic beauty, had been laid to rest under the twisted yew in the Riff churchyard. But anyhow, Mr. Black was sufficiently good-looking to be called handsome, in a countryside where young, unmarried men were rare as water-oozels. He was tall and erect, and being rather clumsily built, showed to great advantage in a surplice. In a procession of clergy you would probably have picked out Mr. Black at once as its most impressive figure. He was what the Miss Blinkets called stately. When you looked closely at him you saw that his nose was a size too large, that his head and ears and hands and feet were all a size too large for him, but the general impression was pleasant, partly because he always looked as if he had that moment emerged as speckless as his surplices from Mrs. Nicholls' wash-tub. It was an open secret that Mrs. Nicholls thought but little of Miss Black, who wasn't so to call a lady, and washed her flannels at home. But she had a profound admiration for the vicar, though I fear if the truth were known it was partly because he set off a surplice so as never was. Mr. Black allowed his thoughtful expression to lighten to a grave smile as he walked on beside Annette, determined that on this occasion he would not be commonplace or didactic, as he feared he had been after the boot and shoe club. He was under the illusion, because he had so often said so, that he seldom took the trouble to do himself justice socially. It might be as well to begin now. "'Are you on your way to choir practice?' "'What a question! Of course I am. "'Have you had tea?' "'No.' "'Neither have I. Do come to the vicarage first, and Angela will give us some.' Angela was Miss Black. 
Annette could not find any reason for refusing. "'Thank you. I will come with pleasure.' "'I would rather go without any meal than tea.' Mr. Black felt, as he said it, that this sentiment was, for him, inadequate, but he was relieved that Annette did not appear to find it so. She smiled and said, "'It certainly is the pleasantest meal in the day.' At this moment the Miss Blinkets and I saw, as I have already told you, the legs of the vicar pass up the lane outlined against a lilac skirt. We watched them pass in silence, and then Miss Blinkett said solemnly, "'If anything should come of that, if he should eventually make up his mind to marry, I consider Annette would be in every way a worthy choice.' "'Papa was always against a celibate clergy,' said Miss Amy, as if that settled the question. Annette and her possible future had nearly reached the vicarage when a dog-cart passed them, which she recognised as the one she had seen at Red Riff. The man in it waved his hand to Mr. Black. Oh, "'That was Mr. Reginald Stirling, the novelist,' Mr. Black volunteered. "'The man who wrote The Magnet?' "'Yes, he has rented Noyes Court from Lady Louisa. I hear he never attends divine service at Noyes, but I'm glad to say he has been to Riff several times lately.' I'm afraid Bartlett's sermons are not calculated to attract an educated man. Mr. Black was human, and he was aware that he was a good preacher. "'I've often heard of him from Mrs. Stoddart,' said Annette, with evident interest. "'I suppose he lived in Lowshire, because some of the scenes in the Magnet are laid in this country.' "'Are they? I had not noticed it,' said Mr. Black, frigidly. He'd often wished he could interest Annette in conversation— often wondered why he seemed unable to do so. Was it really because he did not take enough trouble, as he sometimes accused himself? But now that she was momentarily interested, he stopped short at once, as at the entrance of a blind alley. What he really wanted was to talk not about Mr. Stirling, but about himself, to tell her how he found good in everyone, how attracted he was to the ignorant and the simple. No, he did not exactly desire to tell her these things, but to coerce the conversation into channels which would show indubitably that he was the kind of man who could discover the good latent in every one, the kind of man who fostered the feeble aspirations of the young and the ignorant, who entered with wide-minded sympathy into the difficulties of stupid people, who was better read and more humorous than any of his clerical brethren in Lowshire, to whom little children and dogs turned intuitively as to a friend. Now it is not an easy thing to enter lightly into conversation if you bring with you into it so many impedimenta. There was obviously no place for all this heavy baggage in the discussion of Mr. Stirling's novels. So that eminent writer was dismissed at once, and the subject was hitched, not without a jolt, on to the effect of the docious scenery on Mr. Black. It transpired that Mr. Black was the kind of man who went for inspiration to the heathery moor, and who found that the problems of life are apt to unravel themselves under a wide expanse of sky. Annette listened dutifully and politely till the vicarage door was reached. It seemed doubtful afterwards, when he reviewed what he had said, whether he had attained to any really prominent conversational peaks during that circumscribed parley. He felt, with sudden exasperation, that he needed time, scope, opportunity, lots of opportunity, that if he missed one there would be plenty more, and, above all, absence of interruption, 
he never got a chance of really talking to her. End of chapter 10